those kind of myths about the dumb jock or athletes just not thinking I think when we really dig under the hood and, and that's what I love about doing my research is just asking athletes those very simple questions about what do you think about during competitions it just opens up pretty much for the next 90 minutes I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> to all these things they talk about and it, it's sometimes it's, it's mind-blowing for me it's wonderful Welcome to 8020 Endurance. That was Noel Brick. He is a lecturer and researcher in sport and exercise psychology at Ulster University. I've been following his work for a long time, does a lot in the psychology of endurance, running in particular. He's got a new book out called The Genius of Athletes, which we're going to get into a little bit. I'm Matt Fitzgerald. And I'm Hannah Hunstead. Welcome to the 8020 Endurance Podcast. And as Matt said, he's I already, been... I, I, I already said that. <laughs> I didn't know you said that. It, they were the first words out of my mouth. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to carry on. <laughs> Matt has been keeping up with Noel's research for quite some time. I have been keeping up with it for about seven days, but <laughs> I was very starstruck, I have to admit, starting this interview and throughout the interview. I mean, this guy is extremely knowledgeable, not only with the research that he's done on other athletes, but with his own fitness and his own mental game too. Yes, I was not starstruck, but I've met all the stars by this, but I'm, I'm a huge yeah, of fan course. of Noel. <laughs> <laughs> But um, it's cool. Actually, you know what? When he mentioned that he had read one or two things I wrote, that was, I got a tickle out of that. But part of the fun of this is that it's really a conversation. So like now you know Noel and like yes. this is how it works. I mean, I'm 50, Hannah. Like I've been at this a while, but you <laughs> eventually like you get to talk to a lot of folks, you collect them and it's not just like, you know, you gaining from them. They will gain stuff right back from you and it's all. Um, it's awesome. For sure. For sure. When we hung up and when, when we ended the recording, he actually said that he was a listener of the 8020 Endurance podcast. And I was like, whoa. Love. So that was super fun. But yeah, Noel has like a very easygoing demeanor and like poise about him. And it's just easily digestible content. And you can just tell that he's so passionate about what he does and kind of has a dream job, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Well, that's, that's just it. Like you can't have every dream job, but you can know the guy or the gal who has one of your many dream jobs. And like, that's the next best thing, right? Like you get to just, you know, put a mic in front of them and, and just chew the fat and it's a blast. So that's kind of what makes our job a dream job, Hannah. Exactly. Speaking about chewing the fat, if you're trying to improve your... <laughs> your life. Inside Tracker is one way to do that. Click the link in our show notes to learn more about them and to improve your life by taking a simple... (laughs) No, by taking a simple blood test and having Inside Tracker help you out with reading your biomarkers and improving your biomarkers going forward. Enjoy this episode with Noel and we'll talk to you guys next week. Noel Brick, welcome to 8020 Endurance, the podcast that's 80% preparation and 20% I can't think of anything. Thanks for joining us. Hi Matt. Hi Hannah. Thanks for having me along. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you both today. But but thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Can you give us a bit of it's Saturday right now. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of a normal Saturday, where you even are? Give us a bit of a situation ship right now. Yeah, so so I live in Ireland. My typical Saturday would be long run Saturday morning. Um but but not today. Tomorrow <laughs> I have a race. I've got a half marathon race tomorrow. So today was just just a an easy 5k with a few sprints in there just to, to keep the legs taking over but yeah I live in Ireland and, and I work as a, a lecturer in sport and exercise psychology at Ulster University in Ireland and I'm also a researcher on the, the psychology of, of endurance predominantly running but broadly endurance I try to practice that as best as I can. I, I always know we're in for a good interview when I just depart from my prepared questions like right out of the gate. And I'm, I'm about to do just that because we've caught you on the eve of a race and you've forgotten more than most people will ever know about endurance sports psychology. So 
what are you doing at this point within 24 hours of a race to prepare yourself for a good race on the mental side? Yeah, well, well, I guess I would say first, you know, the, the mental preparation for me has started started quite a while ago. Um, so, so just to give some context for tomorrow's race, tomorrow's race is a half marathon. And really, for me, it's just a, I kind of see where I'm at for a marathon that I'm running on the, the 3rd of October. So the goals, I've got a time goal for tomorrow, but I suppose number one in terms of mental preparation for me is, although that's my goal and, and, and that's what I've been sort of training for, that's not my focus right now. My, my focus is very much on how I plan to pace the race, you know, in terms of feel. So my, my plan tomorrow is to, to go off slightly slower than than average goal race time just to sort of see how i feel and a nice 5k kind of run today that that has actually let me know that that i actually feel in a pretty good place so my preparation has been quite good so so that's kind of one thing that's focused for me is focusing on just just my race strategy my, my tactics going into that race and, and what i plan to do i'm not racing for position or anything like that it's, it's purely just to see time wise wh- where i am and and what i can maybe then aim for in, in the marathon I'm, I'm running the marathon as a as a, an attempt for a boston qualifier um so so for my age category that's now i'm just on the cusp i'm 44 turning 45 come uh boston so so i'll, like, I'll get an extra five minutes so that's great so so it's a 315 um boston qualifier time that i'm aiming for and i know that'll have to be closer to 310 to, to qualify for boston in terms of mental preparation, probably the other big things that I'm, I have been doing in the last while as well is, you know, I'm, I'm very strategic about building my confidence coming into races. And by strategic, I mean, you know, I've got certain markers that I try to hit in training. And w- when I do hit those markers in training, so that might be, you know, I'll, I'll do a 5K race and I know a specific time that I might want to get in, the, in that race. Specific sessions where you just, you know, I'm not going to say I nailed the sessions, but the nest, the sessions felt great. I felt strong. I could feel my fitness improving, and and I really am quite meticulous about kind of noting those things, reflecting on those things, uh, and anchoring my confidence to those very specific achievements in in uh, training. That's a huge part of my preparation, and probably a third part then, which I've really worked a lot on this this time round in, in this training cycle is is my self talk. And again, I mentioned you know sometimes I'll do five k you know time trials in training, and what I really try to work on in those is my self talk, and especially in those last two k where I'm I'm just hanging together and and everything is screaming, you know this isn't a race. Why are you doing this to yourself? And, and that's just such a great opportunity just to really work on my self-talk. Because, you know, in a half marathon and a marathon when I'm pushing the pace, that's the stuff you'll have to do. So, again, I've been very strategic, I guess, in terms of developing my self-talk and making sure that it's, it's really strong in those difficult moments. One thing that I found really interesting when looking at some of the research that you've done is that you talked about elite athletes, they instead of not thinking about how they're feeling, they're always thinking about how they're feeling. And so I'm guessing that's part of your self-talk. But my question is, when you get to that point in a race, and let's say you run through all of these practices of self-talk that you've had, like, okay, my legs are killing me, let me, you know, pick this route. Or like, let me think about the team that I'm racing for. Or like, Let's say you run through all of those and nothing's really working, but you're in a race. <laughs> what, like, what do you do? <laughs> uh, that, that, you know, that, that's a brilliant question because you've, you've just reminded me of a scenario in, in a race I did a few years ago, and so I might use that as, as the example. The, 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 first, the first bit you mentioned about, yeah, what, what athletes mentioned about tuning in, you know, I, I think it was something that was really interesting. And I, I kind of mentioned, you know, one of my, one of my kind of plans for tomorrow is, is early in the race. I'm, I'm going to just, just tune into how I'm feeling. I'm, I'm going to just use those first few K as a bit of a, not not a warm up, but just to ease myself into the race as such. Um, and that's one thing I absolutely learned from, from the elite athletes we spoke to that they would just check in every now and then. The, the research in this kind of area about what, what athletes, what runners, for example, focus on 
would typically have said, you know, we either tune in or tune out. We either associate, which is the term can you use, so tuning into how we feel, uh, what's my breathing like, what, what are my legs like, all those kind of things. Am I thirsty? Do you, you know, all those kind of things. Um, versus tuning out, versus distracting ourselves and, and just focusing on anything but the, the, the actions and, and the, you know, feelings that we have and actions we're doing, all those kind of things. But what we found in, in a study we did in... Um, I think it was 2015, 2016 with elite runners was they were quite deliberate in terms of doing a body check, tuning in to how they were feeling and then using that not as something to tune out from, not as something to distract themselves from, but actually as a really important source of information. You know, so again at the start of a race, is my breathing too heavy? Am, am I going a little bit too hard? Can I maintain this pace? If, you know, all that, that kind of checking. Uh, and if everything's okay, great. If they pick up some information based on, on that tuning in process, then that's maybe used to update their tactics or to make tactical decisions or, or whatever it might be in the race. That is one thing. It's definitely one thing from, from that study that I've, I've taken forward to, to my own kind of running practice, I guess. The second part of the question I've forgotten, I, I'd always, oh yeah, oh. sorry, yeah, kind of all, all these strategies and, and if they're not working. I, yes. I, I, I kind of have this, not an analogy, but it's, it's just kind of how I describe how I use the tactics. It might be an analogy, if that's the wrong word, I apologize, but I kind of imagine it as like having a deck of cards, having a handful of all these various cards. So you've got your self-talk card, you've got your relaxation card you've got the the running club that might be motivational for your card doing it for somebody else kind of card breaking it down into little chunks like just get to the next kilometer point card all those kind of things and sometimes in race i'll literally you know i'll try one of those strategies and you're absolutely right there's, there's one race a marathon I did a few years ago where i was like literally in my head i was like oh that's not working and you know i, I tried to come on <laughs> keep going you can do it and i was like yeah. I'm not sure I can, you know, it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> strong enough just to, to beat the field. So so the card that I played in that particular race was just latching onto the runner in front and I was like, they are not getting away from me. I gave them a name, I gave them a nationality, and I was like, they are not getting <laughs> away from me. And, and uh, you know, it's not something I tried, it's not something before, it's not something I used before, mm-hmm. but it worked. Um and so and so that just helped me through a moment where I was really struggling. So I think that's kind of one thing as well I've sort of learned from elite athletes is that they've got all these different strategies and, and it's it's just sometimes a case of knowing a strategy, so knowing what self-talk is and how you can use it, for example, and then B, having that card to play when it might be the right card to play at that particular moment when you're struggling or whatever. So so that's kind of the, the, the image I kind of use to, to describe how I use various strategies sometimes and how those athletes describe yeah. it as well. Do you see that people develop those strategies more in races when they've played all their cards. And I guess like it would be a more elite athlete, right? That has different cards to play because they've run through so many different scenarios. But do you see athletes develop these strategies more in practice or in like race? Yeah, so so, so I think it's it's a mixture of both and, and then some other sources as well. Um, I think, a lot of you know there's, there's one athlete that i remember from that study that we did and she described even just one for strategies her self-talk strategy the how that would vary and, and change over over seasons depending on maybe where she was at in her life and things like that what might be motivational for her so i think that's kind of one thing that an athlete might use a certain strategy like self-talk but w- what they say to themselves and the content of that changes over time um, so that might be a specific mantra that, that's motivational for them. Again, that athlete that I'm thinking of had recently had a kid. So, so again, she would repeat a mantra that was motivational based on her kid and doing it for her kid and, and things like that. So, so, so that can be one thing. I think another thing as well, athletes learn them from various strategies, from, from coaches, from psychologists, from, from other athletes as well. And, and one thing, you know, we, we did a follow-up to that study with elite athletes and, and we we interviewed beginner runners, runners who'd been only kind of taken up running about 12 months prior to, to the interview. And what we learned in, in that study, and the questions we asked in that study, things like, you know, where did you get the strategies that you use? Where, where have you picked them up? Or, you know, and for a lot of the times, they had a very limited range of strategies. You know, they were only starting to learn about running, only starting to learn about things like maybe keeping relaxed or, or things they might say to themselves when, when it got really tough. 
But one thing that came out quite strongly on that was other runners as a source of strategies. Um, so again, maybe going for a training one with a more experienced runner who might say things like, just focus on getting to the next lamppost, or if this is tough, their self-talk was maybe um, incorporated into their own kind of self-talk. So what the other runner might say, like, just get to the next lamppost, keep going, dig in there, push through it. You know, all, all, all very simple things sometimes but that can be hugely effective when we're really struggling. Now that raises the interesting question of the role of individuality in practicing some of these techniques. You know, because I've found you know, the example I always give is that when I get to the really challenging moments of a race, I, I like my inner drill sergeant comes out, and I, I not always, but often I will, I will get very hard on myself, and my language becomes salty, challenging my manhood. But it, it is effective for me, but you know, through my coaching work, I have learned <laughs> that that's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't work for everyone. So it seems like some of these, some of these techniques are universal, and then, but there also has to be a space left open for you to do things your way, right? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, again, self-talk is a great example of that, because, and, and especially those motivational things, because what might be motivational to one person might be absolutely meaningless to, to another person. I gave the example of a runner who maybe has, has, has a kid or something like that. And, and, and again, reflecting on that, thinking of that might be very motivational for, for that individual. Um, t- taking another strategy as well, um, one runner we interviewed in that, in that uh, study spoke a little bit about relaxation. Like we sort of think maybe maintaining relaxation universally we would think is, is a useful thing to do and a helpful thing to do. But I remember one particular runner said that when they're going down the back straight and they're pushing as hard as they can, that relaxed is the last thing they want to be at that point because their interpretation of relaxed was sitting in, taking it easy, you know, whatever, and they're just giving it everything. So I think that maybe there's a little bit of sometimes an interpretation of a technique there and how it's applied, but also it's maybe, again, going back to the point earlier, different runners play different cards at different times depending on what they think is the most helpful or or beneficial at that moment so i think you're right matt i I think there's there's an idiosyncratic side to how we use strategies how we develop them and what we feel works works for us as well so i was watching the collins cup this morning which was the first ever pto professional triathletes organization race put on they were racing for either europe u.s or the international team and a lot of these athletes competed against each other or compete against each other normally triathlon's pretty individual sport and for seemingly kind of the first time the europeans where they're usually head to head with each other were on the same team and the point system was set up so it was very team focused versus individual and a lot of the post-race interviews were them talking about this team and like oh i was doing it for the team i was doing it for the team and i was just curious if you had a response to that where these athletes are training so much for themselves most of the time and racing for themselves that like are they just so good that it's easy to kind of flip the switch and be like okay today i'm focusing on the team or do you think that was kind of a hurdle they had to get over that's interesting and I think actually we see, we see that in a lot of sports as well. And another context that comes to mind for me is, is, is in golf, the, the Ryder Cup, where, again, athletes who normally compete as a team in the Ryder Cup every two years or four years, four years, I think, they come together um, as, and compete as, as either the US or, or Europe. I, I, think there is, I think there's two sides to that. I think there's challenges to that for an, an athlete who's maybe used of competing individually, performing individually, focusing on themselves as an individual. And I think... I think sometimes that maybe that kind of team environment can be really challenging sometimes and, and being able to you know play a role for a team that you're just not normally used to playing you're normally you as a solo athlete i think motivationally though i think motivationally it can be really interesting as well because you know again normally we maybe think of, of motivation as you know either intrinsic doing something for enjoyment or, or just doing it for curiosity or whatever or extrinsic, doing it for to win a medal or to win gold or whatever it might be. But but I think that team environment sometimes brings out other motivations as well. That this sense of doing it for something greater than just me, doing it for us, doing it for another, doing it for a nation that I feel a certain uh, affiliation to, an affinity to. And I think motivationally, if I think a challenge sometimes in a team environment, especially that where you're bringing individuals together, that there's lots, there's there's bringing lots of different personalities together and trying to make this cohesive unit. 
But I think that's something that can be really harnessed as well, this idea of something greater than just me. And I think teams that try to harness that and develop this sense of us generally perform quite well in, in those kind of situations. But but it's challenging, absolutely it's challenging to do. Yeah. That can come that can become kind of like cliche though. Like if, if we talk about coaching a lot on this podcast too and I feel like it takes a really good coach to nail that. What comes to mind is the Ted Lasso series don't know if you're familiar with it but he's a great coach anyway um but yeah it's kind of like a cliche environment or like you it takes a really specific sort of formula to to create that genuinely in athletes yeah and and i guess i mean there i suppose again two things i suppose one one from the athlete side there needs to be a sense of coherence with that that they sort of as you say it's not fake and that they kind of maybe buy into to whatever type atmosphere the coach is trying to create but i think that there's a lot of good research on kind of social identity and approaches and how a coach or players leaders within a group can develop a, a social identity within that group again that sense of us that are referred to and you're right, I think for it to be genuine, it's quite challenging. But, but again, there's a lot of research that sort of shows how just right down to the language a coach, coach can use, you know, that it's, it's not kind of in a team environment. It's not like I, the coach, you, the athlete. It's, it's developing this sense of us and a shared sense of us. And I think you're right, Hannah, that, that the skill of the coach to, to create a genuine environment like that can boil down to the language they use, what they draw on but also how they model that themselves, that they have that shared sense of us themselves, not just me as coming in as a coach, as an individual coach to work with you as a group. So we've gotten rather deep into this interview without mentioning your new book, The Genius of Athletes. In the writing work that I do, I am referencing scientific research all the time. And you know, sometimes I'll come across a study by a team of sports psychologists or exercise physiologists and it's a one-off. Like I never encounter those particular researchers again. But with you rewinding a few years, I can't remember the first time I quoted something or cited something that, that you had done. But it's, it's fun. Like when, when I come across a study, I'm like, wait a minute, that, that name rings a bell. Like I, I've definitely, I've seen that name before. And then over time, in a few special cases, I'll have like a favorite researcher will come out of like just, you know, seeing... Part of it is that you do good work, and the other part is maybe that I also share an interest in what you're interested in. All this to say, I've been following your work for for a while, and I was really excited when this book came out, and doubly excited when I saw that um, a writer I really respect a lot, Scott Douglas, collaborated with you on it. I'm curious to to know how that came about, whether Scott went to you or or you came to him. So... Thank you, first of all, for the very uh, kind comments. So yeah, the book really started through an email exchange between Scott and I. Scott, I think, had written maybe two or three articles on some of our, our studies for Runner's World. And so we developed, you know, kind of a, a relationship just via email. And after one of those studies, Scott sent an email and basically said, you know, have you ever thought about potentially a book in this area about the strategies that athletes use, what they focus on, what they think about, and, and generally what we can learn from that. So the conversation between us really started from there and, and ultimately developed into uh, The Genius of Athletes, which is, is the book we published a few months ago. What, what that's about is, you know, the strategies, some of the things we've been speaking about, like self-talk, etc., and the strategies that athletes use. And, and I think, I suppose, kind of two things really, first of all, what those strategies are, what is the evidence behind those strategies to say that they can be helpful. Uh, and then secondly, how those strategies can help us in everyday life as well, not just in endurance challenges or sporting challenges, but how they can help us overcome, you know, difficulties in life, like doing a presentation or we even tell some athlete stories there about how they have taken what they learned as athletes to develop a new career after they transition out of sport or to, to overcome. There's, there's one story in there about Keegan Randall who describes how a lot of the strategies, mental techniques that she learned to cope with challenges in uh, sport as a, as a skier, she helped or, or helped her through a cancer diagnosis as well. So it was that sort of idea that we sort of developed and through, I suppose, a lot of interviews with different athletes. Then it was the questions were broadly based, similar to what I would have asked some of the athletes that we spoke about uh, in my research. What do you think about? What do you focus on? But then secondly, how they can apply to life as well. You know, I had an idea for what I think would have been a similar book. I have way too many ideas. I need to live a long time to, to write them out 
or hit them all. But so my working title for this book that you scooped me on was Smart Jock. And like I was sort of getting at the same thing. There's this cliche of the dumb jock. It's like either you're physical or you're mental and you can't be both. And, you know, in my experience in, in rubbing shoulders with a lot of elite athletes is that these folks have a lot going on between the, the ears. So, you know, can you unpack that concept of the genius of athletes a little bit? Yeah, and actually I think the opening sentence in the introduction is is something along the lines of the idea of the dumb jock is, is now right. dead. That's right, <laughs> pretty much. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, we've spoken about some of them already, but you're right, this idea that I think one, you know, there's, there's maybe two myths, I think. One is, is this idea of the dumb jock, that it's all brawn and no brain, and, and you know, what we see on playing in front of us or, or playing out in front of us in the sporting context is all done automatically or you know without much thinking i think that's the other myth that athletes don't really think very much when they're performing but but actually the reality is whether it's a runner whether it's a football player whether it's you know baseball golf whatever it might be athletes are thinking all the time and, and i think to perform at the very best you almost have to think all the time because to win something major you've got to manage some pretty challenging emotions, emotions that can get in your way of, of performing at your best, be it anxiety or, or frustration, or even sometimes feeling good can, can sometimes let you down, you know, if, if, if you take your eye off the ball, literally, or metaphorically. So I think that that's kind of one thing. But then it's, it's the strategies that they use and, and how they've developed those. And again, Hannah, you, you were sort of asking some of the questions about how, how athletes have developed those strategies. And I think for me, that's one of the most interesting things. And very often it's through, we mentioned some of the, you know, whether it's other athletes, coaches, psychologists, training, etc. But, but even very often as well, it's through previous failures. Sometimes it's maybe getting to a big competition and just underperforming at the time. Uh, and one of the key skills that, you know, we, we kind of looked at in our research this idea of something called metacognition, this idea of thinking about our thinking, how athletes plan their thoughts, how athletes monitor and control their thoughts during competition. But on the flip side of competition, after competition, there's the reflective piece. And it's thinking back and, you know, how did, I, how did I handle that really tough situation? What was I thinking? Uh, sometimes it is literally, what was I thinking? But so sometimes it's also <laughs> more reflective. Um, what was I thinking? What did I say to myself? For example, if I'm a runner, right, and let's say I'm doing a race with a, a really tough uphill finish or something like that, what was my self-talk like during that tough finish? What was I saying to myself when, you know, it was really tough, it was really hurting? How did I get through that? And, and sometimes strategies are learned, developed, refined through that reflective thinking about our thinking sometimes. So I think there's kind of a lot of processes there that we try to then bring into the book in terms of how athletes, first of all, the various types of, of, of strategies that athletes use to achieve goals, to manage their emotions, the things they say to themselves. Uh, I even alluded to earlier how they build their confidence deliberately and again, how those can be helpful during performance. And I suppose what we try to do in the book is we, we try to make it really evidence-based that you know these aren't just strategies that we think could be helpful. There's science behind these and, and there's evidence behind these. But then secondly, it's also telling a story about how an athlete might use those. And we base those on both real-life examples of sort of athletes, for example, Michael Phelps or Muhammad Ali, athletes that we hadn't interviewed, but who've been quite open about their strategies that they use in, in competition or to, in preparation for competition. But also some of the athletes that I mentioned earlier that we did interview as well. Those kind of myths about the dumb jock or athletes just not thinking, I think when we really dig under the hood, and, and that's what I love about doing my research, is just asking athletes those very simple questions about what do you think about during competitions. It just opens up pretty much for the next 90 minutes. I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> to all these things they talk about. And it, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's mind-blowing for me. It's wonderful. What's been one of the most surprising answers to that question from an athlete? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I've used this one in a, in a few different talks that I've done, both with athletes and sometimes I would sort of go into schools and talk to, to kids about, you know, sports psychology, but try to apply it to things they're doing, like preparing for exams or, or whatever. And there's, there's, there's one athlete I spoke to who was an Olympic marathoner, and, and she, the, the phrase and the quote that she used was that for her, if you were to stand at the start line of a marathon, I think I've got 26.2 miles to run here. 
you would go crazy, you would turn around, you would go back home again. And, and those were the words that she used. And I remember sitting there at that interview going, what, I think like that, but I didn't think that. <laughs> I don't would think like that. And I just thought it was incredible. But, but what she went on to then say was, okay, that, that's the, maybe the automatic thought about, I, I might have. It's like, wow, this is a marathon. And for anybody, this is a really daunting ex- challenge to, to take on. But the next part of that was, so she would just focus on getting to the five mile point. And so she'd break it down, it was, okay, it's just five miles. Really, I'm just focusing on getting to, to mile five. And then from mile five, it was, okay, let's, let's get to mile eight. And then when she was at mile eight, it was like, I'm nearly at mile 10. Wow, I'm nearly at mile 10. And then it's from 10 to halfway. And it's just how she broke down the challenge of running a marathon. And that's something I've, I've brought into my, my racing as well. This idea of, of chunking it down, of, of breaking this big mammoth task into smaller, more manageable chunks. Uh, and really, you're just focusing on one chunk at a time. And it just makes the challenge feel so much less daunting and so much easier. For sure. Yeah. I've definitely applied that in, in triathlon. I think it's maybe a bit easier just because there are three disciplines, right? But I remember finishing one race and my dad was like, man, 70.3 miles. And I was like, oh yeah, like I forgot that that was the actual <laughs> distance. Um, just because you kind of do have to chunk it down. But kind of a follow up to that, that question is, do you find that these elite athletes are born with this thought process and do this naturally they don't have to learn it whereas maybe the non-elite like recreational athlete i i don't want to shame them but um the non-elite non-professional athlete has to learn these processes more so than than the elite um i i I think first of all there's a lot of learning in here you know those those athletes that we spoke about sometimes we in the interview i would ask them that very question how did you learn these strategies did you did you know and we can kind of maybe guess what the answer is but you know did you know these strategies when you were performing as a junior athlete when, when you began your running career and most times they as you would expect they would say no they would talk about things like when i first started racing i would just go whatever the distance i would just go as hard as I could from the start and but I pretty soon learned you can't do that and, and still race well <laughs> so they learned about pacing through really unpleasant experiences and really tough experiences so I think a lot of these things we, we learn as, as we go through but but I do think there's maybe kind of even though we haven't looked at it in any of our research but I do think there's kind of personality elements to this as well so for example a more conscientious athlete might think more about their event might think more about their race might reflect more on their failures and and try to learn from those reflect on those and develop strategies I think you know there's potentially that's personality side to it as well but we haven't looked at it in our research as I say Mm -hmm. I think probably a last point there as well in terms of the metacognition side that we spoke about, the thinking about our thinking. I think the evidence says there as well. First of all, there's a development in terms of, of our development. There's kind of a developmental aspect to that. We become more reflective. Our metacognition improves as we get older through from, from our younger years through our teenage years, etc. That improves developmentally. But what we find with elite athletes as well is these are skills and these are skills that they've harnessed. Planning is a skill monitoring our thoughts during our activity is a skill and I think when we think of these things as skills then like any skill in any sport by practicing them we can develop them we can make them better and I think it's the same for all these kind of um, psychological skills that we talk about too. I came across a fascinating example of of that sort of reflection recently it was a quote from Jakob Ingebrigtsen the newly crowned Mm -hmm. 1500 meter gold medalist from Tokyo. Uh, he's from Norway. He's 20 years old. <laughs> um, and he, the, the quote, he was talking about how nervous he gets before races, especially the 1500, which he, he thinks is the, the most painful race. And he said he does not like being in pain and he knows it's coming and he just gets all, uh, turns into a bundle of nerves. And he said there was a time when he thought about, you know, should I do something about this? Like, like, is this a problem? And But on reflecting on it, he decided, you know what? Actually, uh, it serves me. Like, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm getting nervous about the pain so that it's actually never as bad 
as I thought it was going to be. He said, when I get into the fire in, in lap three, I'm fine every time. So, so he said, you know what, I'm just going to leave this alone. Like it's not pleasant, but it, it clearly I'm doing it for a reason and I'd rather keep it to to have that level of reflection is really impressive. But so I wasn't doing that at 20. Like how do people, you know, who aren't just sort of doing that automatically bootstrap their way to being able to do something similar? I th- yeah, no, I, I think that was absolutely so fascinating. And, and actually, but I've also loved listening to his father, who's his coach, talk about how he learned through kind of um, not maybe experimenting with the, the older Ingebrigtsen brothers, but, but certainly learning from, from their experiences. I, th- I think one of the strategies that there's kind of maybe two strategies that I would unpack from that. One is one is how he appraises those experiences and the kind of meaning that he takes from those experiences. And we can do this similarly with with feelings of anxiety or nervousness before race. And I suppose the idea here is okay. How do we, if I take anxiety and then maybe talk about pain a little bit? How do we appraise that? Do we appraise that as something that we don't want to feel that's potentially harmful? That's it's obviously maybe unpleasant. But the meaning we, we give it can impact on how we subsequently feel or perform. So, for example, if I feel really nervous before race and I think, oh, gosh, I'm really nervous, that means I'm not going to perform well. You know, and I, I tell myself a whole story because I physically feel anxious and I feel nervous. This race is not going to play out to plan. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. All, all those kind of things. That can obviously lead to heightened anxiety and, and ultimately lead to, to worse performance. So how, how can I manage that then? Well, one way is I can appraise those feelings of anxiety differently. Uh, and actually, for me, I've, I've got a race tomorrow, just to bring it back to the, the start of the conversation. And apart from a 5K kind of park run, you know, which is a non-competitive event, this is my first race for, gosh, 18 months, maybe two years. And I am so excited to be nervous before the race tomorrow because I haven't <laughs> felt that feeling in so long. So how I'm appraising the same anxiety is very different. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited about being nervous um, and I'm excited for having those feelings. But I think the pain is, is similar. I think, again, okay, we know it's going to come. How do we appraise it? Do we tell ourselves a story when we feel that pain that, oh no, this means I'm going to slow down. I'm going to miss out my goal. This is the last, for him, maybe 300 meters is going to be horrible. Or for me, maybe the last 3K is going to be horrible or whatever it is. Or do I actually interpret that same thing slightly different? Do I praise it slightly different? Because, you know, sometimes when we feel that pain, a story we could tell ourselves is, great, this means I am pushing as hard as I can. I'm able to push myself as hard as I can. I mean, how brilliant is that? How few people get to experience this pain that I'm experiencing right now? And actually, if I was injured and if I couldn't run, I would love to feel this effort and pain. I would probably really miss it the same as I've missed my pre-race anxiety. So we can appraise it differently and we can think about it differently. Now, that maybe sounds really unnatural and, or unusual. But, but and again, that's maybe something that works for me. You mentioned about different things working for different people. Uh, one of the athletes we interviewed in our elite study talked about pain acceptance. Uh, and she talked about when that pain comes or effort comes, or, or sometimes overwhelming sense of effort, it's about accepting it. It's about this is part of the race. This is part of what I do. This is part of the event. What did I think that I wasn't going to feel this? Of course, if I'm pushing as hard as I can, of course I'll feel this. <laughs> so, so, so it's kind of accepting it, being, being okay with it. And I think once you do that, you can then start to, rather than think about maybe avoiding that pain or getting really stressed or panicky because you're experiencing those sensations, because you maybe appraise it differently or because you maybe accept it differently, then you kind of free up the space to start using your self-talk strategies. Come on, push through it. Can I master this challenge? Can I push through this pain and, and maintain my pace? And then it becomes a challenge or, or a game and something you can actually get quite excited about taking on when, when it comes in a race. I'm curious about what you've kind of got in the works to pivot the conversation a little bit. You've done obviously a lot of research, but is there anything you're working on right now that you're super excited about? And then um, also, how do you find the next thing to to do research on in this field? Is it just through the last spurt of research you did? You pick up one little thing and you're like, oh, this is interesting. Let me now go further down this rabbit hole. Yeah. there's so many different ways I think the second part of that question first is because I run myself a lot of ideas for studies especially the lab based off the experimental stuff that we do just comes from my experiences both in training or in races 
there, there was a study we did about maybe three years ago now where I was quite interested in how perceptions of, of control and, and pace regulation influenced how, how we felt during an event. So but to unpack that, what I noticed in, in a, just a very simple training run with a running buddy was when I was kind of ahead in the training run and we were say running at a certain pace, maybe it was like seven thirty minute miles or something like that on a trail run. When I was kind of leading, when I was ahead, the pace felt comfortable, it felt okay. And I felt because I was setting the pace, I felt more in control. But then as we naturally kind of switched positions and I was behind, even though we were doing the same pace, I was like, I'm not sure I can keep up with them. I'm not sure I'm gonna to get to the, the, the top of the next peak. The pace wasn't different. We were still on the same trail, but what changed was my whole perception of what I felt I could do, whether I was setting the pace or following the pace. So I wanted to experiment with that and I wanted to find out, okay, is this something that might impact on how people feel regardless of whether they're doing the same pace or not? So, so we kind of set up an elaborate study where we had people do a, um, a series of time trials in a, in a lab. The first one was self-paced. And then I'm trying to think back to, to the order. The, the, yeah, sorry, we did a self-paced baseline and then we did a time trial where I repeated back the exact same pace to the runners on the treadmill that they did in their self-paced one, but I didn't tell them that. I told them that I was taking control of the run. And what was fascinating was that even though they were doing the exact same pace, the pace changes were happening at the exact same times, different runners interpreted that so differently. Some runners, when I told them that, they were like, great, I don't have to think, I don't have to think, I just pop on the treadmill and this is like a race with a pace setter. Whereas I remember one runner at the end of the trial looked at me and asked, and asked, what were you trying to do to me? Were you trying to run the treadmill? <laughs> it, it, was, it was incredible, and, but it was the exact same pace that they had self-paced an earlier trial. So that was one, one thing that just came from an experience in my own training of just something I noticed. So that's one, one um, place where, where a lot of ideas from studies come. The second one is you're right from some of the interviews we do with athletes, just something will just kind of get a, a chain of thoughts going in my mind about Gosh, I don't think that's ever been researched before or whatever. And then thirdly, I think what I, what I really enjoy and get some ideas from is, is reading stuff like maths or, or some published um, research papers where you just kind of come across something that's written and you think, well, that would make... Either, either sometimes it's written really explicitly, like there's no research on this, or you just it just pings an idea that you think oh wow that would be something really cool to, to investigate. I think the last part of the question then I've I've got a I've got a file on my computer that's called study ideas and a bit like Matt mentioned for book ideas, mm-hmm. I've got just all these kind of study ideas and I actually added one one or two to it last week based on a paper that I read. I'm not going to say what they are, but I've I've got one or two that I think would be just quite nice areas to research based around things like. So, so one idea is about self-talk and a slight manipulation in self-talk that I literally came across a research paper that I was reading last week that, that said there's no published research on endurance running on this particular topic. And then another one that I'm, I'm quite interested in at the minute is there's been a lot of re- really interesting stuff done by Sam Akura, who, who obviously, Matt, I know you know from How Bad Do You Want It, but a lot of really interesting stuff on mental fatigue and how mental fatigue impacts on endurance performance but what I'm particularly interested in is is strategies that we can use to overcome mental fatigue but strategies we can come in place to overcome the effects that mental fatigue can have on endurance performance so so again a a few ideas around that area of research that I think once we get back into our labs and in Ireland here we're still there's still restrictions around COVID etc but once we get back into our labs there's just a lot of cool ideas that I can't wait to develop some studies for. And hopefully, can I g- find participants. <laughs> can, can I give you one more? Go for it, absolutely. Yeah. All right, because like, unlike, well, I'm one of those writers who will say there's no research in this area or whatever. But I do come up with you know, like ideas for like, oh, this would be a cool study. Except unlike you, I can't do anything about it. But now I've got your captive attention. So here, here's one that I think somebody should do. You'd have a large group, as many as you could get, of people, recreational runners, maybe training for a half marathon and split them in two. And they basically follow the same training plan. It would be sort of like a a scientifically vetted, a, a very appropriate way for recreational runners to train for a half marathon. And then one group would just do that. But the second group, the coach would be, they'd probably need help from someone like you, but the coach would be given some leeway 
to fine tune the program to maximize enjoyment. So explicitly, so sort of physiologically, they're identical programs, but maybe some of the runners would be given choices like within a framework that made sense or just little ways of like, you can run with someone if you want, or if you prefer, you can run without, you can run with music if you want. And, and so you would track two things. One is like, is it actually working? Like are, you know, it, you know, is the intervention working to increase enjoyment? And then is there a correlation between enjoyment and outcomes? Like, do they actually run a better half marathon? I don't think that study has been done. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it would be a good one. I, absolutely. I think it would be great. I think there's so, you know, and, and the, because the evidence behind that, the, the research that would inform that is there, there's a, a few different things. I think one is there's a lot of research to show that for beginners especially, how we feel during the activity is so important for longer term adherence and, and it's called affect. So again, it's not just that we sort of look back on something and think, oh wow, that was really enjoyable. It's, it's during the moment that we find it pleasant or, or more pleasant than it might otherwise be. And it's things like music can help with that. You're absolutely right. The thoughts that we have can, can sort of help manage that, the environment. One thing that's really interesting, you sort of mentioned about choice, um, that, that sense of having some autonomy over the training program, the choices that we do. So one thing that I think would be, hey, we're developing a really cool study here, I love it. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> one, one thing, there is some research that's been done like this, and there's a lot of evidence to support in, in different areas, is giving people a sense of choice over, for example, okay, here's, here's three sessions you gotta do this week. Maybe let's say physiologically or for any training outcome, it doesn't really matter whether it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday that you do these sessions. But one group, it's this is the plan, you follow the plan. So, so there's a lower sense of autonomy, less control. It's actually controlled by a coach. Whereas for the other group, it's okay, these are the sessions, this is the plan, but you choose which you do on a Monday, which you do on a Wednesday, which you do on a Friday. So now I feel I've got some control in this. And already that probably feels more enjoyable to me. I'm probably, well, the research would say I'm going to feel more motivated. And ultimately what that research does show is that that leads to better performance. I might push a little bit harder in those sessions, so that could lead long-term to, to better performance as well. But ultimately, what you mentioned, Matt, it's more enjoyable. The, the session's more enjoyable because, again, I've got that sense of autonomy and that sense of control. I think there's lots of things that you could bring into a program there that would make that a really, long-term, a really interesting study. A lot, a lot of the studies in that area have looked at the effects of autonomy, for example, on a single session. So, for example, the weight lifted in, in a single session or... Uh, there's one really cool study which looked at how powerful somebody punched in a session, again, based on whether they were given choice about the type of punch, the order they did it, and stuff like that. Uh, and what they found was when somebody had a greater sense of autonomy, they exerted more power in the, the study. But I think for a longer term program, that would be, that would be really interesting. All right, we'll talk. <laughs> yeah, I'll be your lab rat for that. <laughs> well... This is very ironic. And just yesterday, Matt and I were talking about the synergy that we're forming as co-hosts of a podcast. But to wrap up our episodes, we usually have, well, actually not usually, we always have a super, super deep closing question, okay? And it is ironically very close to the one that Matt just asked. But the question is, for a PR to happen, or like a very good race. PB. He's uh he's Irish. It's PB, okay. not PR. <laughs> okay, a PB, a peanut butter here in America, a PB <laughs> <laughs> to happen. Is happiness during the race part of the equation, or only after you cross the finish line? Hmm. So um. The, oh, uh, or so enjoyment, to, to, for example. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would say okay, uh, not necessarily happiness, but yeah. So, so you mentioned enjoyment, and you mentioned affect or, or that sense of pleasure. Um, I think it can be important, and some some of the research at the minute on pacing models and models of, of pacing suggest that that sense of affect. So again, how unpleasant or unpleasant something feels at the time is important for a pace. So if something feels less pleasant then that is going to impact on performance unless unless we have strategies that we can use to overcome. So, so that idea of 
I feel horrendous right now, this is awful. But at the same time, I can overcome that and keep myself going by using self-talk, getting through that. I'll, and I'll, give, I'll give you an example and then I'll give you, because you know, I'm actually hoping to run a PR tomorrow. So <laughs> we'll test this experimentally with an N equals one study tomorrow okay, and see perfect. how it goes. There was one really interesting study that was done in 2008 and it was a real life study with marathoners. And what they were interested to know in that particular study was the real world benefits of, of, of simple self-talk strategy. So in this particular study, what they did was they took a group of about 50 marathoners and split them into a group that, or sorry, I think it was about 100 into two groups of 50. And one group went through a self-talk training program. So the idea was in a self-talk training program that you develop these very simple motivational statements like, I can do this, I can push through this, keep it going, etc., etc. And again, these were individualized, personalized for the, the, the person. What they found in that study was, there was a number of things. One was that in the marathon, regardless of whether you're in the intervention group or not, people still experience what they call a psychological crisis. And that's the kind of the really tough moment at mile 20, 21, when you doubt that you can get to the finish line. But what they found was those runners who went through the self-talk intervention, even though they still experienced that psychological crisis, which is, you know, again, it's not, I certainly don't feel happy. It certainly doesn't feel enjoyable. It certainly doesn't feel pleasant. But those runners who went through the self-talk program, they experienced the same psychological crisis of similar intensity as the non-training self-talk training group, but they managed to maintain their pace better towards the end of the race. So, so I think it's not necessary that it, it's going to always feel pleasant or it's going to always feel good, but those strategies that we have can help us PR by get, overcoming those really difficult moments in, in a race. But also feeling good can help. <laughs> that, that's, 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 the other, that's the other short answer. Interesting sure. as well, you know, our mood bef before race or during event can be quite important too because if our mood is more negative, that can amplify some of those those negative thoughts or those kind of less pleasant feelings that we have during an event. So those can impact on ultimately how we feel, etc. One of those answers that can also be, well, it depends. You know, if everything's going great and you feel good and you've had, you've had good preparation, your mood is good, but also just the race plays out like you want it to play out, then, then feeling good can be part of that as well. Got it. I think that we should we should get you to name a number. Tell us what your PR is, and then in the show notes, we'll include a link to your result. So I'll be sure to follow <laughs> up, so so people can actually see. We won't. It'll be there's no spoiling. But what's the number? What's the time to beat? Can, can I ask if I have a choice in this? Is this autonomy support? <laughs> oh yeah. This is okay. All right. Yeah. You know what? I didn't. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking. Forget it. <laughs> let's go for it let's go we'll, we'll that's it. the spirit um, so I'm, I'm not particularly fast my, my current marathon sorry half marathon pb is i think it's 129 129.35 i think that, that might be wrong maybe 129 something I, I missed out on it by about eight seconds in a, a solo half marathon run last september so that also, in terms of confidence, going back to what that lets me know, if I can do that solo, then I can hopefully get close to breaking it tomorrow. My, my goal for tomorrow, I feel I'm about 128 something shape, 127 on a good day, but, but let's say about 128.03. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pace it for 128.03. That's specific. <laughs> I like I'm going to beat that. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Amazing. Well, yeah, we'll definitely link the results in the show notes. Uh, we'll be cheering for you tomorrow. And thank you so much for being here. This was, I could have talked to you for three more hours. I know we probably say that about every guest, but seriously, a wealth of knowledge here today. Thank you. Great, great stuff. Thank you. Thank you both. It's been really enjoyable talking to you both. So, so thank you both. I really appreciate it. No brick, everyone. I mean, like we said in the intro, just a wealth of knowledge. Hope you picked up a thing or two throughout that episode. He did, I'm happy to report, he did uh, get a PR, a PB in that half marathon that he was racing the next day. So shout out to Noel. We're so excited for him. If you want to learn more about his book or catch up with him, contact him, whatever it may be, we've got his information in the show notes. And we'll chat with you guys next week. Have an awesome weekend.